Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Politics is news. The top political story of the day, that's the story that leads the broadcast. That is the story on the cover of the newspaper above the fold. It's settled. On this, we are agreed. I mean, there are a lot of things that are in the public interest, but the topic that binds and unites us all is our democracy, our public policy, our elected leaders. Everybody cares about that stuff. Except... Except, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess a lot of Canadians care about Canadian politics, but every Canadian is touched by our healthcare system. You can't avoid it. Can I use literally here? Almost. You literally cannot avoid our healthcare system. Almost. But whereas every general interest news organization in Canada has a stable of political pundits or columnists, there is but one journalist, literally, one journalist in the entire Canadian media who has the job of health columnist. And that journalist is Andre Picard. 
Yes, there are several health reporters for various organizations, but nobody else has the full-time job of making sense of this stuff, analyzing it, opining about it, representing the public in making arguments about healthcare. One guy for the entire Canadian healthcare system, one guy for the entire Canadian public. Andrea Picard has done that for the Globe and Mail for almost 40 years. He has covered horror stories in our healthcare system. He has covered stories that have shaped national opinion and stories that have saved lives. How do you do that job? How do you write critically about a system like healthcare that is woven so deeply into this country's identity? And how do you do that job when popular resistance to science itself keeps growing? I mean, how does one man stand strong against the growing hordes of celebrity wellness gurus and anti-vaxxers? Let's find out. I recently interviewed Andre Picard when we were both in Winnipeg. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Danielle Sebastian, Aaron Basdeo, Bernie Finkelstein, Isaac King, Mark Bluin, Craig Riggs, Jillian Mackey, and Dawn. My name is Dawn. I work in marketing in Kitchener, Ontario. I support Canada Land because I like understanding the stories behind the stories, the weird political ties, and the conflicts of interest in an increasingly consolidated media landscape. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Hi, Andre. Hi. So your job is health columnist. Are you the only person in this country with that job? As far as I know, who writes just, who writes just about health, yeah. Why is that? I'm not sure. I think, you know, you... 
talked about in the introduction of politics and health is really politics writ large. And I write about health policy. I don't really write about medicine and health policy affects absolutely everyone. Now, the difference is I, I think of myself as a political writer, but I don't write about partisan politics, which I find tedious. I write about politics in the true sense of the term about things that affect people. I think about, you know, to extend the analogy of health coverage versus politics coverage, politics coverage makes this assumption that everybody reading it or listening to it is like an insider who wants all of the inside scoop on strategy and polls and tactics. One thing that I like about health coverage is that it does not ever do that. It never assumes that you have technical expertise. It doesn't assume that you're a doctor. It's always about why does this matter to you? Is that your job as you understand it to explain to people how the things that happen in the healthcare system matter to them and impact them? Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully we don't descend into that jargonish stuff and we try to avoid it. But yeah, I think you try and write about stuff that I say, well, what is the impact going to be on the public or on certain aspects of the public? And if it doesn't matter to anyone, you know, if it's just he said, she said stuff, I, I don't think it's really worth writing about. You must be in a position to like really choose what to cover and what not, given that you're the only person doing this. I mean, one thing that happens all the time is that people bring stories to me. They think they have scoops. Uh, often they do have scoops, but a lot of the time they're not scoops that have anything to do with what I cover with the media. And I try to give them a referral. I try to figure out who actually does this kind of reporting and then I send the story to them. Almost, I don't know, like half the time or more, they're health stories. This seems to be the thing that people are most likely to think, I have something that is of huge news relevance. And some of those I've sent to you and I've sent to other health reporters. But it just, that's when I got the sense that like, this is the stuff that people really care about. Yeah, there's a lot of big, good health stories to be done and only a tiny fraction of them get done. So as you said, I, I'm pretty spoiled. I can pick and choose about what I do. And that's why I try to limit myself to the policy. You know, if you start writing about medicine, you could write any number of stories, but I, I think there are enough people doing that already. You've been doing this for how long? 30 years? Yeah, over 30, almost going on 40. That's incredible. I can't imagine like people talk about what we've lost and all the layoffs and journalists retiring and not being replaced. It's the depth of beat knowledge. It's when somebody's been covering something for a long time. Almost 40 years, I can't imagine the depth of your beat knowledge. It certainly helps to have some background and some context and some understanding of the jargon. But to your, your larger question, I think the problem we have in healthcare reporting is the same problem we have in the healthcare system. So it kind of mirrors it. And we don't have a health system in Canada. We have a sickness care system. And in the media, we tend to write about problems with sickness care. We don't write about how could the public be healthier. And we know the way the public could be healthier if we ensured that they had good income, if they had housing, if they had decent food, if they had a sense of connection, if they had decent education. We write about all those things as very peripherally. We do a very bad job of covering what matters to people in their day to day their kids' education, being fed, getting to work safely, not being poisoned on the job, having a place to live. That's what matters to everyone every day. And we don't write about it. We write about, oh, there's X number of people in the hallway of X hospital. That's tragic, yes, but it's not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. And the reason they're there is for all those other, because they're not well fed, because they're not well housed, because we create a a political and social policy environment where we allow people to get sick and then we spend enormous amounts of money trying to fix them when they're already broken rather than trying to prevent that. I mean, you could apply that critique to all news coverage, really. Like, we don't deal very well or frequently with systemic issues. We deal with weird shit. 
we deal with scandals and outliers when something not normal happens. But when the normal thing is, is, is not right, we have trouble figuring out a story format. Absolutely. We do that writ large. We don't put things into context. We cover little skirmishes and we don't cover the big picture. But I would argue that in healthcare, it matters a lot more because it actually affects people's lives. If we cover politics badly, well, maybe we get worse politicians, but that's not the end of the world. We have bad health coverage. I think it makes for a, a less healthy population. Sometimes you've got to cover the scandals and those stories are worth telling, even if they are outliers. But there's been no shortage of them in Canada, and I'm thinking specifically of the tainted blood scandal and the mother risk scandal. Could you give us nutshells reminding us of those two stories? Yeah, so I'll start with the tainted blood scandal, one I was intimately involved with. for I wrote about that almost exclusively for years. So that was a big deal. I started in the late 80s writing about that. And essentially, it was at the time when AIDS came along. Uh, AIDS and hepatitis infected the blood system. And we gave people transfusions of blood and blood products. And they got infected with these deadly illnesses. And in the long run, probably 30,000, 40,000 people will die of tainted blood. It's the worst public health scandal in history. Uh, Mother Risk is a smaller scale story, but one of a really excellent program at SickKids Hospital designed to ensure mothers stay healthy rather than wait for them to get sick. And then as a side business, they opened up this weird hair testing lab to figure out we had a mania about drug use back in the 80s, 90s, similar to one we have now. And they started blaming all these mums whose kids died for, for killing them. You know, they had things like SIDS, and they started blaming people for being drug addicts or substance abusers, and they test their hair, and the hair would demonstrate that they were addicts or something, and they would get sent off to jail. And long story short, and, and this is a Toronto Star story that they've done very well over the years, essentially this stuff was fraudulent. It was just nonsense, bad science, and a lot of people lost their children. They went to jail. Their lives were ruined because of this bad science and this desire to, to make money to, to fund another excellent program, which has been pretty well lost in the process in the collateral damage. And the one thing I can never understand about this is like, you know, you've got in court cases, child custody cases, uh, people trying to prove this parent, are they a drug addict or did, were they feeding their child cocaine and strange stories like that, sending a hair sample and saying, yes, positive, uh, this person's a drug addict and the child being removed. Like, you know, I can't think of anything more consequential. And the lab is giving fraudulent results. Why? Well, we've had a couple of these. These scandals come up intermittently over the years and they're driven by dogma, by this desire to do good. But people become these zealots and they become convinced that, you know, all these druggy mums are killing their babies. And they have a theory and they find a way of finding it to be true. And it's not true. But you're dealing with scientists who are doing a lot. Like, you know, I think that we defer. That's what so much of this coverage has to do with is that people feel so incredibly powerless. This is an area where politics is an area of debate. And we know that we can debate with policies of politicians or we can take issue with their opinions. When you go into the medical care system, you're just like handing over total authority to your body, your children. And somebody in a white lab coat is saying, this is science. This is just the way it is. And they're giving you blood that might have hepatitis or HIV in it, or they're testing your hair and coming back with fraudulent results. You know, I mean, these are horror stories. Yeah, they're absolute horror stories. And the really difficult thing about them is most of them sort of in their root, they're well-intentioned. And then it's, it's just kind of science gone awry. So it's misuse of science. It's If you take the Red Cross story, they really believed that they had to keep giving bad blood to people, otherwise there'd be no donations. So they really, I think, honestly believe that. 
Although if you know you step back as a rational person and say, how could you possibly believe that? And even if you believed it, why didn't you try and minimize the amount of blood that people use? You know, there's a lot that could have been, this, this was not an entirely preventable scandal because of the way the, the science and the virus unfolded and spread, but a large part of it could have been avoided very, very easily just by a simple bit of honesty, just saying we don't know, we're not sure, and we could have cut blood use dramatically, and we have since then, but we could have done a lot sooner. And there's still ongoing policy ramifications with now they're trying to do private plasma clinics and... Right. And, you know, it's what it's left is this lingering doubt about the system, which is bad for us. But, you know, we should always have a little bit of skepticism. And as journalists, we didn't have enough skepticism in the 80s. Uh, we have these iconic organizations like the Red Cross. We believe they could do no wrong. So when they told us, oh, one in a million units of blood are infected, we believe them. And at its worst, about one in 300 units of blood were infected. It was a terrible, gross lie that was perpetuated on the, the public, and the media didn't find them out until years later. And then that results in a loss of faith, like that, that doctor in the white lab coat goes from being a savior and a hero to a monster. And that, I think, informs this, the third story I want to bring up, which is the star on, on Not Such a Good Day with their ill-fated HPV story. That was a really interesting case that I still think about quite a bit because as far as I can tell, this was an application of the methodology of journalism. The way you would investigate a story like any other is like, okay, we, we've heard accounts of somebody getting this HPV vaccine and then having some terrible, you know, we can't prove causation, but there is seems to be a correlation. They went home and they died. They went home and they got very sick. And then we found another. And then we found another. And you end up with a story that the star ran that essentially told you that if you give your kid the HPV vaccine or if you get the HPV vaccine, you could die. That was like the direct ramification of this story. And of course, just the opposite is true. If you don't get the HPV vaccine, there's a direct relationship to developing cervical cancer. Right. And sometimes we do it wrong. I think that's an example. And it, it's one of those ones where the causation, one correlation is a really difficult puzzle sometimes. We just don't know. But when you apply it too rigidly and you forget that there's other rules that we have to apply, and one of them, is it biologically plausible? That's another test that I think didn't get applied in that case. You know, I could write a story like that saying that people raising their umbrellas causes a lot of rain. Uh -huh. you know? So that's a, a correlation story that we turn into a causation one. And there's good evidence out there. You know, every time I see people lifting umbrellas, there's more rain. But then you go, was that biologically plausible? What what in the mechanism of raising the umbrella causes things to fall from the sky? And then you figure, well, that, that's, guess that's not how it works. And I think that's what was missing from that is how can this vaccine cause people to die? And it's there's no obvious explanation. So I think they should have figured that out. I often make the analogy that journalism is very much like science. It should be self-correcting over time. So there's no question we make mistakes, but hopefully we correct them and fairly quickly. And that, that's how science works. It sort of goes astray a bit and then it gets back on track. Have we corrected for that? I mean, I think what led those journalists at the start to pursue that story is who wouldn't want to break the next tainted blood scandal story or the next mother risk story? Those are huge stories. They're award-winning stories. They run on the front page. And you can go to bed feeling like you've done an amazing thing for your readers. So that search for scandal in the case of public health stories really had a disastrous result. And we'll, we'll never know if it was a little bit of harm or a lot. But in addition to whatever, however many people it, it made afraid of to get a vaccine, it also contributed to this larger loss of faith in the medical system. 
Yeah, I think maybe it had a small contribution, but I think in the grand scheme of things, I don't think it had that much impact. It didn't have legs, right? So that's the important part of that. It, the other media didn't pick it up, unlike, say, Tainted Blood, where it, it got a lot of pickup and every <laughs> media was covering it. And that's the last we heard of uh, anxiety about vaccines. There you go. Well, you know, the, the vaccine story, one star story is one little part of a much bigger, complicated puzzle about why do we have vaccine hesitancy? And the history of that goes back. Uh, we've had a vaccine hesitancy and anti-vaxxers as long as we've had vaccines. So since 1796. So I was just at a conference the other day where someone put up a slide. It was a, an editorial cartoon from a, a newspaper from 1796, you know, saying, oh, vaccines kill you. And that element has always been with us. And we, we struggle with it to this day. And these days we're struggling with it even more because there are new methods for people with extreme views to, to perpetuate them easily. I guess my layman's sense of what's happening on a wider scale is that there is a widespread growing distrust of authority figures and, and specifically doctors in the medical community and justified. Like people are questioning the profit motive behind a lot of the science and what's happening with the big pharma. But the problem is, is like, and this is an analogy for the bigger problem of our age. Once you think you've gotten too smart to be fooled by the authorities, now you're in the wilderness and you're listening to Jenny McCarthy? <laughs> and you're listening to Jenny McCarthy instead of a doctor. You're listening to Donald Trump tell you, uh, oh, well, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I just think you should give a less. Like that movie Idiocracy is coming true. Like we're, we're actually like losing faith in science. And I wonder, have we learned that lesson? Like, you know, what you were suggesting is applying the same methodology as science, which is a different methodology for arriving at truth than journalism. Yeah, I'm not saying we should necessarily have the same methodology, but I think we more or less have the same outcomes. We kind of correct in our own ways. On the anti-vaccine one, I think what's different now is there's this large number, this whole continuum of people who are hesitant, you know, we call them vaccine hesitant. Why has that happened? I think it's all the things you mentioned. It's kind of this perfect storm. We distrust pharma. We distrust authorities, government. So there's a real crisis in trust in society. And this is just one glaring example of it. And that, yeah. that's not going to be solved with better science. We have to fix a whole bunch of things, right? We have to fix politics. Uh, we have to fix science, the way business operates. There's a lot of reasons for people to be skeptical. For too long, public health has behaved like a religion. Vaccines are good. Trust us. Don't dare ask any questions. I don't think that's helpful. I think most of the vaccine-hesitant people are very well-meaning. They all want to do exactly the same thing. I want my kid to be healthy. But ooh, I've heard these bad things about pharma, and I've heard about this and this and aluminum, and you name it. And we don't do a good job of assuaging their fears and explaining basic stuff. Wouldn't that be where you'd come in? Yeah, that's where the media should come in. And I think we're getting better at that. I think with our vaccine coverage for a long time, we did too much of the, what we do in general, too much of the he said, she said journalism, you know, oh, we have a pro-vaccine person, we better get in that anti-vaccine voice. And I don't think that kind of stuff is appropriate in, in science and health writing. And I think we've learned that lesson the hard way. Yeah. I exist in a, call it a community or a bubble of discourse where it's pretty much united that this anti-vax stuff is deplorable, should be shamed, that it's putting everyone at risk to hell with these people who want to bring back measles of all stupid things. And then there's like this little part of your brain. that's like, if tomorrow there was some news story where they said, Oh, actually we got it wrong. And there was some big pharma interest pushing this. It would just feel like the same version of a story that we've heard in other cases where something that we were told was good for us turns out to be disastrous for us. So that little tiny kernel of doubt, it makes some people hesitant, I suppose. 
Right, and we've created this environment where that kernel can blossom pretty quickly, right? It's part of a larger problem where we romanticize medicine. We pretend that things are magical. And, you know, I, I have no hesitation telling people vaccines don't always work. Yeah, they have problems, and we should be more honest about that. Things like antidepressants are a good reason. Antidepressants work less than half the time. That doesn't mean they're bad drugs. It means that's the limitations of our knowledge at this time. And we have to be much more honest with people and say, listen, this stuff works maybe, and we're going to give it a try. And if it doesn't work, we're going to try something else. It's saying, oh, we've got this miracle blueberry pill that's going to stop you from getting heart disease. That's the stuff we do in uh, healthcare that that's really, I think, harmful in the long term. This one day blueberries are good for you. The next day blueberries are going to kill you this just total nonsense story. But the media plays a huge role in that. Yeah, the media plays a huge role. I think the, the mainstream media has gotten away from that, thankfully. Maybe just because our papers are smaller. It might be a good byproduct of that. I think a lot of that now is just to generate online hits. To, you have to be careful where you shop around for your news in general and your health news. Do you see a connection between this widespread skepticism and loss of faith in medicine and the rise of the wellness movement? Oh, absolutely. The wellness movement, populism more generally, we want, you know, we don't want to trust anything big and bad and, and we want things to be natural. So there's all these buzzwords that, that are meaningless and the wellness industry is part of it. And part of it is we're just spoiled, right? We've lived in a world where infectious diseases in, in the Western world are pretty well invisible. So we've come to believe that, oh, we, they can't do any harm. My potion that I'm taking, my homeopathic potion, it must be good because my kids have never had any of these diseases. So why should I vaccinate them, put poison in their bodies? So we come to believe these things, which on the surface sound sensible. But then, you know, you have to know a little bit of history. You have to know a little bit of context. You have to understand that why these diseases have disappeared and how easily they can come back. People don't have that education. They want miracle cures. They want simple things. And in the wellness people market themselves way better. There's no question. Yeah. And even like kind of well-heeled, educated people seem to be kind of vulnerable to superstition and getting into like ideas that you can kind of meditate your way out of cancer. Or if you stick a jade egg into your orifice, it's going to be a good, you know, like there's celebrities telling people to do things that are dangerous and bad for them or, or just snake oil. Right. And, you know, these educated, wealthy, middle class people have the luxury of, of believing that because they're they're healthy. They've been brought up in a good, sound environment with a good income, a roof over their heads, all the stuff that make you healthy, they have and they take for granted. Uh, one of my favorite stats ever was the if you want to know where the largest pockets of anti-vaccination are, go within a kilometer radius of a whole food store. That's the reality of right. who's not vaccinating now. It's not poor people will walk in Africa, will walk three days to get their child vaccinated because they see death every day. Uh, we're spoiled. I wonder what the, the miracle drug as a media product, I mean, we've kind of identified various media formats. The, the big medical scandal is a format. The miracle drug or the miracle breakthrough is a format wellness in the form of little tips and tricks and life hacking stories, which are not written by people with even as, as journalists, medical expertise is a format, but writing a thoughtful, persuasive essay, you're the guy who does that. Like that's not a popular format outside of your work in this country. No, it's not a popular format because you have to take some effort. I, I don't know how far down into it people read. It's 700 words. I hope they get at least 100 words in, but I, I don't know. 
Unfortunately, it's for an elite audience, right? That's who reads my paper. I, I know that. That's mm -hmm. a, a much broader question about how do we educate people? What do they want to read? You, you give a speech. You ask an audience of medical professionals, what does your patient want? What are his or her goals? Those are the questions that must guide your practice. Most of your patients will be older and have a number of chronic conditions and be nearing the end of life. Their goals are different. They're not going to be cured. You have to focus on the quality of life. They want to be at home. They don't want to fall. They don't want to be in pain. They don't want to be a burden. They don't want to be alone. They don't expect miracles, but they would like respect. In a different way, you have a message of wellness and of holistic approach to health. Your audience, in this case, are doctors who you are lecturing, really, to stop treating symptoms and stop industrializing. I just wonder how one in your position and how, as a enterprise, journalism could kind of orient itself to talk about these things more. Yeah, I think it comes back to what I said earlier, that we have to write more about health and how do we help people achieve quality of life as opposed to how do we treat things and make them less sick. So it's just a shift of perspective. And, you know, a lot of what uh, I was saying that you were reading is it explains why the wellness movement is popular, right? So a lot of the things they say are perfectly sensible, but then it's the and to get that, I'm going to give you this magic pill. It's the exact same solution as what's failing in medicine, but it's just a different pill and it's magic. It doesn't have any side effects because it doesn't do anything. So how can I have any side? That's the irony of the wellness movement. It's exactly medicine, but with some glossing over, some different presentation and marketing. Yeah. I mean, it's actually beneficial to tell people, slow down, take a walk, meditate, be present in your, in your life. Probably does have positive medical effects. Yeah, have a good income, right. choose your parents well. I've done a whole list of all the things you can do. Get Have good genes. There's all kinds of things. You can guarantee right. good health. When you start talking about income, you're you're talking to a different audience and you're talking about a larger issue, about just how many comorbidities there are with, with, with poverty. And at a certain point, it starts to sound like activism. It might be. You know, I mean, perhaps that's okay. Well, I think of it as advocacy. I don't, it could be activism. I think of it as advocacy. And I think that's an essential part of, of good health care is having advocacy. I infer from what you write that like maybe a guaranteed minimum income, the government would actually save money in the long run on what they'd save in medical costs. Well, I have mixed feelings on that. I actually wrote my thesis on that in university. And it, as everything, as with all important public policies, the devil's in the details there, right? So I, yes, I believe in a guaranteed minimum income if it's a decent income. So I think the problem with many of these proposals is we're going to guarantee you a, a poverty wage and we're going to keep you in poverty. That That's not a solution. We have that now. We don't need it in a different format. With a specifically Canadian focus, this might be the main thing that we pride ourselves on is our free health care. I think it consistently is the top thing the Canadians cite about what's so great about Canada. You've written that we should calm down a little bit, that really we're just comparing ourselves to the States, which is, as you have it, morally bankrupt and economically inept, and that it's, it's something of a hollow victory to win a, in a fight against a country with, with that standard of healthcare. Yeah, compare ourselves to a country with a good healthcare system and we look really bad. So I like to say, and people don't like to hear it, it that we have the least universal, universal healthcare system in the world. That's not anything to be proud of. We cover very little of what other countries cover. Only 70% of our healthcare is publicly funded, 80, 85% in most of Europe. We have the least spending of any country in the developing world on social programs, only about 13% of our GDP. Uh, compare that to Denmark, 27% of GDP goes to social programs. Not surprisingly, they have much healthier people and lower health costs. It's no surprise. We know what the formula is, and we don't live up to it. We overspend on sickness care, and we underspend on health care. 
and I've been hammering away at this message for, for many years, and I guess with not much success. The part where people really respond is, how long does it take me to get an MRI? How long does it take me to get my knee replacement? How long does it take me to get a test? And that conversation becomes this endless conversation about privatization. I feel like as a population, we're actually tremendously ignorant. Like, I, I know that our healthcare system, though wonderful in some ways, if you need a liver transplant or you know, if you need certain procedures that might cost hundreds of thousands of dollars elsewhere, it's kind of wonderful that society will kick in and make that happen for you. But I would have trouble explaining to a non-Canadian exactly what ails our system. I, I could say, well, some people think that if we privatize some clinics and some tests, that, that, would, that would have a good effect. Yeah, I think you're in the large majority that people don't know what's wrong with the system. And I think I try and explain it very simply. I think what's right about it is we have great medicine. If you're in the right place at the right time in our healthcare system, you get care that is good as, as good as anywhere in the world. So that's great. We don't have medical problems, but we have really bad structural and administrative problems. So we make it difficult for our great caregivers to care, and we make it difficult for patients to get the care they need when they need it. So that's, that's about engineering. So I talk over the years, I talk more and more about engineering now than, than medicine, because I think that's what we have is an engineering problem. And then we have the whole, you know, the magic word in Canadian health politics is weights. We're the country where everyone waits. That's yeah. what we're known for. And weights are not always bad, and that's heresy to say. So we have to focus on the weights that are bad. And we, we don't do that. We just have this obsession about, oh, waiting is bad. You know, why do other countries not have weights? Because they have better engineered systems. They move people through. We have all the care parts of the package that every country has, but our people fall through the cracks. And, you know, all the bad things that happen in healthcare, every... Horror story that you hear has a common element, is it happens in transition. So our transitions are horrible. If you move from the emergency room to the ward, if you move from the ward to home, from the hospital with home care or to a nursing home, all those transitions have weights in them and unnecessary and dangerous weights. And that's what we have to get right. If we figured out the streamlining, our care would be superb and it wouldn't cost anymore. So you don't think we should just let people buy a place at the front of the line at some private clinic? I think we talk about that rhetorically too much. I actually don't think many people in Canada believe that. In fact, I think one of the big problems is our three or even four main political parties essentially think the same thing. There's very little philosophical discussion about healthcare in Canada. The conservatives don't want to privatize healthcare because they know it would be political suicide. It's not part of our values. What really matters in every healthcare system in the world is its culture uh, that's evolved over time. So in Canada, uh, I'm kind of obsessed with uh, Medicare history. You know, you have, you have go back to the 1600s when we established our first hospitals. They were all run by religious institutions. It's in our Canadian DNA that healthcare is something that's free, in quotes, that it's a charitable act. You go look at Germany. Germany has a very different system. Uh, healthcare has always been a, a product like any other that can be sold, and they have a system that reflects that. Germany could no more have the Canadian Medicare system than we could have the German one. So I think this whole private-public mm. debate is a false debate. You think it's like a cultural thing? Like Absolutely. and Because I, I, people, I think, just have this idea of like, well, which country has the best system? Let's just do that. Yeah, and that's, that's a mistake. You import a system and it's guaranteed it'll fail. And there are many, many examples of that. To me, the discussion, the real private-public discussion we have to have is a more basic and, well, not simple, but clear one. And it's what's covered by Medicare and what isn't. 
So we have a lot of private health care. As I said earlier, we have the most private health care of any Western country aside from the U.S. 30% of our health care is private. In the U.S., it's just under 50% now. When Obamacare kicked in, they essentially became a socialist nation. You know, the majority of their care is paid publicly. Mm. And ironically, U.S. public health care is much more generous than Canadian, but it's only offered to people over 65. If they made their Medicare system universal, they'd kick our butts in terms of equality and equity in the health system. So we don't have a lot to be proud of the, the system that we have. We really have to fix that. And this whole private-public nonsense, every system has an element of private. And what it should be is it should be the non-essential care. We have to figure out what's essential, how we pay for it, how we ensure everybody has equitable access to care. Not equal, but equitable. And we have geographical challenges that are unusual in the world, and that adds to it. But all of this is doable, and all of it is done elsewhere in other countries much better than in Canada. What makes you so smart? Besides the fact that you've been doing this for almost 40 years, you're a reporter by training. You're not a doctor. No, and well, and you don't have to be a doctor to understand what's wrong with the system. A lot of patients are much more knowledgeable than me because they've lived it, the nitty-gritty of what's wrong. I don't think I'm smart. I think I'm good at sort of taking stuff and, and putting it into a pot and then giving you a very small summary of it. So that that's my talent. I'm not the greatest writer. I'm not the greatest researcher. I'm not an investigative reporter, but I'm good at summarizing complex issues into a readable format. I say this as, as your reader and somebody who enjoys your work quite a bit. I think it is unreasonable to expect you and the few other people, if any at all, to do the work of advocating for the public's right to know in plain English what's happening with our healthcare system. What do you prescribe? Like, are you advocating within the globe? Do you see any, like, we're talking about which country has the best healthcare system, which country has the best healthcare coverage? Is there anything happening in the space that is a sign of hope or you're seeing something pop up where a new model for approaching the public and decoding this stuff and explaining it that's uh, been inspiring or, or encouraging for you? Yeah, I think the hope is, for me, is that uh, health journalism that's happening now, the good journalism is better than it's ever been. So it's really sophisticated and it's complex. And that's true in Canada and the US and Europe. Now, the other side is the bad stuff is getting worse than ever. You know, the listicles and the, the nonsensical headlines, the glowing articles about Gwyneth Paltrow, that stuff is all depressing. But the good is getting much better. And the really unfortunate thing is the the middle's kind of falling out. So what disturbs me the most is that all these small town papers are not only losing their health reporter that they used to always have, covering the local hospital and, and health unit, but just those papers are disappearing. So yeah. I think that's the real tragedy. You know, at the Globe, we have five health reporters. We have a, a really healthy contingent. Uh, there's a recognition that this is stuff that people read. It makes them buy subscriptions. I, I understand that part of the business, and I'm, I'm thankful for it, that there's some interest in what I do, but everything else is shrinking around us, and that's that's not good for democracy and ultimately probably not good for the globe because why will we keep doing it if nobody else does, right? In this kind of new media economy of social media influencers and personality kind of trumping all, it's not always a bad thing. I think of like Dr. Jen Gunter taking on Gwyneth Paltrow and, you know, from the position of, of, of a OBGYN advocating for women's health as a blogger and as somebody who's kind of a myth destroyer, like a myth buster, uh, almost like, you know, Penn and Teller's bullshit or, you know, somebody who's kind of making it a bit of a fun wrestling match to watch the snake oil get debunked. 
Yeah, and there's a lot of people like that out there, and we need more of them. You know, there's Jen Gunter and Tim Caulfield and a whole bunch of, you know, science-based uh, medicine and any number of people that uh, I'll follow on Twitter, and, and they're all doing great stuff online. And you asked earlier, you know, what gives me hope. Uh, there's all kinds of new media companies like Vox, I think, is really in, does really good health coverage. Uh, ProPublica, you know, funded by by donations from philanthropists, does Pulitzer Prize winning health investigations. So there's a lot of really hopeful stuff, especially in the U.S. You know, the U.S. politics is so bad that it's really been a bonanza for journalism in many ways. It's unfortunate that's what it took. But uh, and there, there's a real discussion there about their Medicare system and how to fix it and make it more equitable. And you know, in many ways, they're putting us to shame with their, their health coverage. Uh, Canada, we pretend to be, this is our pride and joy, and we don't really invest in it from a, a journalistic perspective. Andre, thanks so much. Well, thank you. That's your Canada Land Show for this week. If you liked it, dear God, tell someone about it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Listen, we are working on an Ask Me Anything episode. Ask me anything. A question about a story you heard on any of our shows, a story you'd like to hear a quick update about. Maybe you have a question about how we go about our reporting, how we choose stories, what our favorite office snacks are. Maybe it's not about us. Maybe it's about you. Do you have a question about anything in your life that you would like answered by me or by anybody else here at Canada Land? Seriously, ask us anything. We might just answer. Email your question to jesse at canadalandshow.com. This episode is produced by Jordan Cornish. Our senior producer is Kasia Mihailovich, and our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show... If you want ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, we will give them to you when you support us on Patreon. We rely on your support, and you can do that at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.